chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was around some he faithfully bore. Welcome to Creekside Church this morning. Just listen to this verse as we prepare our hearts uh, to continue worshiping together. Psalm 89.1 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Well, a lot of times we think about how all the changes happening uh, in our society and in the world, but just think about that the faithful love of God endures uh, to every generation. Uh, is, a, is a huge blessing and encouragement that we can take with us this week. And let's just bow our heads and, and give thanks to God and ask him to prepare hearts uh, for the morning. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, uh, you are just, you are true to your promises. And Lord, we just ask that as we are joining uh, from our various homes this morning and um, and just pausing to remember Christ, uh, that you would just encourage our hearts Remind us of, of your great love. Um, remind us of the great gift of Jesus and how, how it is a blessing that we can just come before your presence wherever we're at, uh, that we can be reminded of truth and encouraged from your word. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody. It's kind of a different, a different Valentine's Day, I guess, I might say, since uh, it's just kind of uh, odd the way things are working out. But hey, uh, we're learning to go with the flow in uh, 2020 and now in 2021. So it's just a matter of trying to sit back and see what God has in store. So just glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I'd invite you to pray with me if you would. I know I need to pray, so I would invite you to pray with me as we prepare to look into the Word of God. Father, uh, your Word is living and active, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. As we come this morning... Lord, it's been a challenging few weeks in 2021. It's been a challenging year, almost an entire year. We've gone through the challenges of the pandemic and so many different things going on in life. And I just pray that as we gather this morning here and most of us in our homes, I pray that you would meet us. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your word to strengthen us, to challenge us, to change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last October, I was uh, traveling and I came to the road closed ahead sign and I just kept driving as I have done in the past and I'm sorry I confess that I do that sometimes. Well, I went and I went as far as I could and I came to a huge chasm in the roadway where a bridge was supposed to be. And so I had to reverse course and find another route, which serves me correct, I, right, I suppose. But the reason I say that is because if I had, uh, if I had read the sign and heeded the sign, um, it, it, it could have prevented a really serious physical accident if I had not 
seen the chasm ahead of me. So that's true for us physically, but this morning I want us to say that that's nothing compared to the eternal consequences of failing to read and heed the signs that are evident, that testify to the reality that Jesus Christ is God's Son and He is our Savior. It was Jesus' scathing rebuke of the religious leaders' blasphemous accusations that are, we are recorded in Matthew 12, 25-37 that serves as the occasion for the text that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38 through verse 45. In the previous verses, Jesus' undeniable authority and his unmatched wisdom have become a threat to the Pharisees, to their position, and actually seem to undermine their credibility and their reputation. And so in retaliation, in a last-ditch effort to somehow cast aspersions on him and to undermine his, his credibility, they come to him with, with a question, hoping to expose him as an imposter. The request and his response to the request enlighten us as to the importance of Jesus' identity as the Messiah and of our acceptance of his identity as the Messiah so that we need to see and read this sign of his Messiahship and we need to heed this sign of his Messiahship. And so in these verses, Jesus' condemnation of those who reject him unfolds kind of in two scenes. Uh, that's the way I've, I've laid it out for us. And the first scene is this. Uh, the perspective of those who reject Jesus is revealed in a request. But before we dig into the text, I want to read the text so we're all up to speed on it. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be, also be, with this generation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and now we see the first scene where Jesus is confronting them and condemning those who are bringing this question before him. And verse 38, uh, in response to Jesus' harsh condemnation, some of the scribes and Pharisees, now they come as representatives of the entire group of scribes and Pharisees who are entrusted, charged with instructing Israel on the law and also uh, knowing it themselves. So there's the, the most learned people in all of Israel with regard to religious experts. And they answered 
his inflammatory charges by asking a question. A simple question, but I would suggest and submit to you a scandalous question. Now, notice how they frame it. Teacher, which seems to be a very respectful designation, a respectful address, which in fact it is if you just looked at the word. Uh, teacher, okay? But in their, their own self-designated piety, they really believed that they were the only ones, they were the arbiters of the law, they were the guardians of the truth, and that nobody else really spoke with authority on these matters. And so it belies, this term belies, their sinister and sarcastic use of the term. Uh, there was a TV show I watched one time, and uh, actually I've seen it a couple of times, or more than once, where the, the father-in-law refers to the son-in-law as general, calls him general. Well, you know, normally that's kind of an endearing term, but the father-in-law's use of the term is really a demeaning term because he's trying to criticize his son-in-law for his take-charge attitude. The scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus. They're not seriously teaching, thinking Jesus is a teacher. Obviously, they've shown that they don't believe his teaching by casting aspersions on it, by accusing him of doing his works and his teachings as a work of Satan. And so, here they do. They ask for a sign. That's what it says in verse 38. They cry, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In Mark's passage, parallel passage, it says they want to see a sign from heaven. So they want something spectacular. They want something magnificent, some sort of manifestations in the skies that will prove that Jesus is who he said he was and something different from this earthly stuff that he's been showing them. At least that's the way I see it. I think they were counting on his inability to serve as the basis for their assault on his credibility. That somehow if they could trap him and he couldn't do it, then that would show it. So here we have those with the most light. Jesus is in their midst. He's been teaching among them. They've studied the Old Testament scriptures. They know everything about it. And yet they're so hardened in their unbelief that now they're seeking to validate their own dismissal of and denial of him as the Messiah. We live in an age, especially in the Western culture, where our awareness of and our access to information and truth about who Jesus is has never been greater. And yet many today are much like, and many of us are like the Pharisees and the scribes in this story. It doesn't matter how much we've been given. We just want a, a bigger thing, a bigger, write it in the sky. If God would just write it in the sky or if God would just do this miraculous healing thing or somehow if God would uh, make it known to me, then I would believe and I don't think it's true. We, we discredit the massive amount of evidence that's already been given to us that proves the identity of Jesus. We deny and question scriptural integrity or we deny and discount the eyewitness accounts and the martyrs who went to their grave testifying to Jesus as the true Messiah and think they're just crazy people. We dismiss all that and we demand another, another sign. Well, the first scene is that it reveals the character of the people. When you're asking for a sign, there's, there's doubt in the heart. The second scene is the longest scene in this whole play, the peril of those who reject Christ is revealed in his response. There is a request and there is a response. And verses 39 through 45 is the response. And Jesus' response, if you look at the text, is framed 
by this reference to an evil generation. So in verse 39, we have an evil and adulterous generation. And then in verse 45, the very last phrase, this evil generation. So we have the whole discussion is framed by this understanding of an evil generation. And in his response to this evil generation, Jesus highlights three charges upon which those who reject him then and now stand condemned and from which he wants to deliver us. So these are the charges upon which unbelievers stand condemned, the charges which he would like to see us liberated from. And what are those charges? Well, first is a rejection of signs. In verses 39 and 40, um, Christ's response to his deceitful opponents, I guess I'll, I'll put it that way, to his deceitful opponents Request was to say to them, as well as uh, anyone who's rejecting the signs previously given, anybody who would reject who he is and what he has done, you are an evil and adulterous generation. You want to ask for another sign because what I've given you isn't enough? It marks you out as an evil and adulterous generation. These are the, the, the worst way to describe them, okay? You're wicked and you're adulterous. They violated the covenant of God in the Old Testament. The covenant relationship was described as a marriage, and so they had violated it. They were adulterers, physically and spiritually and mentally. Now, not all of them. Some of you point to the Bible and say, well, there was this guy by the name of Simeon. Some of you remember Simeon. You remember Anna when Jesus was taken to the temple as a baby, and they recognized him as the Redeemer, as the Messiah. As the Messiah. And the, 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 but the majority, and some of the faithful recognize him, but the majority of the people at the time rejected. In fact, we're going to see later in Matthew chapter 28 that the scribes and Pharisees actually tried to cover up the resurrection. <laughs> no, it couldn't be. We'll pay you off. Just lie for us. And they were like the Jews that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. He says they, they seek for a sign. You know, the Greeks want wisdom, and the Jews want a sign. So here they were, wanting a sign. And marked them out as unbelieving people. No sign would be given them. So he says, no sign is going to be given to you. Not the sign that you want. No. No, why not? Why wouldn't Jesus give them the sign that they want? It's not that he couldn't, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't capitulate to their whimsical request in order to try to validate who he was. He had already given enough evidence. He would give more evidence, but not of their sort. I was thinking about, you know, not capitulating to the whims of people, and I uh, came across this uh, thing. I remembered it, hearing about it, that Carly Lloyd, who's one of the U.S. women's national team, soccer team stars, at a recent event, she, was, she, she remained standing for the national anthem while other of her teammates were kneeling during the national anthem. She refused to capitulate to the, the pressures and the whims of, of the culture and of the others and do what they did. No, she would stand up for what she thought. And here we have Jesus doing the same thing. The only sign Jesus is going to give them and any ever subsequent generation is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And he describes it this way. If you look at verse 39... It is the sign of Jonah. <laughs> it's the sign of Jonah. That's the sign that he would give to, give to them. Just as Jonah went down into the belly of the sea monster, 
Jesus would go into the belly of the earth, and as was the case with Jonah, so the case with Jesus would be, three days he would come up. So too the Son of Man would be buried and again rise on the third day. Now, Jesus does a couple things here. He validates the reality of Jonah's story. Okay, So he's not making it up for what it isn't. He's validating it as real. And he designates it as a foreshadowing of his own experience. A foreshadowing of his own experience. Now, not directly. It's not a direct parallel. They're not, everything's not the same. For example, uh, Jonah was alive when he went into the sea monster. Jesus was dead when he went into the grave. So that's just one example. But it, essentially in substance, essential in substance, they were. Both were delivered from a deadly experience on the third day. That's the big deal. And I know a lot of people have a debate about this. So three days and three nights and... My suggestion is that the three days and three nights reference isn't a discrepancy between prophecy and actual history that undermines the credibility of Jesus or the scripture or the Christian faith. I don't think it does that. Why not? Well, three days and three nights is, is simply saying, uh, not a direct parallel, but he's saying, look, it was three days, three nights when you use the term day to refer to any part of the day. Somebody would ask me, how long does it take to get to see your, your wife's family in Indiana? I'd say, well, it's a day out and a day back. Well, actually, it takes about seven or eight hours, but I would say a day. You know, you basically shoot a day to get there, you shoot a day to get back. It's, that's what it is. So a similar idea is going on, I think, in this text. Jesus' hearers would have heard this. Jesus was in the tomb on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, three days, okay? Now, the three nights part, again, I'm not pressing the details. I don't think we need to get hung up on it. It's a generalization, not a rigid time correlation, okay? It's just saying, just like Jonah went down into the belly of the fish, three days later, he's up. Three day, Jesus went down into the grave, three days later, he's up. There we have it. But the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus on the third day is the final. You can say, if I use this term correctly, it's a mic drop. Okay, It's the final and the only remaining sign that Jesus would give them and any other generation of the reality of who he is. The testimony that he is the sign. It's more, it, it was the sign that declared his identity. It demonstrates his power to save. And folks, it demands a response from us. It's more miraculous and more marvelous and more glorious than any sign previously given and it packs all the proof needed to confirm who he really is. So we better read the sign and we better heed the sign. Unfortunately, the majority of the leaders at the time, majority of the people at the time, they saw the sign but they didn't heed the sign. They turned away from it. And in fact, the amazing thing for me is we even have more evidence than they did. <laughs> we have more evidence than the audience to which Jesus wrote. Because, in fact, Jesus was saying to them, I will die and rise again. The scripture says to us, he did die and rise again. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to look up that later, you can dig more into it. But uh, we have even more compelling because Jesus did rise from the dead. Paul says, if we have believed in Christ Jesus and we, he has not risen from the dead. Now, this is my paraphrase. We are of all men most to be pitied because we're still in our sin. 
Then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but Christ did rise from the dead, the first fruits. And that's a key phrase. He was the first one to conquer sin and the grave in a permanent way. And so through our repentance and faith and trust in him, we participate in that resurrection. We will be raised again one day with Jesus. He's the first fruits, which means there's more coming. Some would say, skeptics today would say that we need to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I like what Sean O'Donnell says when he puts it this way. The burden of proof is on the skeptics. They have to find the corpse of Christ. There's an empty tomb. We have eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died on the third, died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and other passages, and that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Psalm 16, David says, uh, you know, he says, I have kept the Lord, I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be moved. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to shield neither will you allow this Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the paths of of life in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's prophetic of Jesus. Okay, He would rise from the dead and he has risen from the dead and he died conquering sin and death and rose to prove that and so that everyone who believes in him can participate in his death, burial, and resurrection and we can live a resurrected life right now but eventually when our physical body dies we'll be with him in glory. The central tenet of Christianity is the resurrection and it's a proof of his identity and each of us must individually, personally accept that. We stand, the evidence is there. We have to either do something with it, we either reject it and as we said last week, Jesus says he, he was not with me I mean, it was two weeks ago. He was not with me, is against me. For by grace we've been saved through faith. We must trust and believe what Jesus did as the payment for our sins and we'd be freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives now. I want us to be warned of uh, the hard-heartedness that was evident in the lives of these scribes and these Pharisees. And not only them, but the people around them. We see this as Father Abraham responds to the rich man in the story of rich man and Lazarus. Look at this verse, if you will, in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. It says this, But he said to him, that's Father Abraham, saying to Lazarus, who asked for Father Abraham to send somebody to his family, he says, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone else rises from the dead. And Jesus has risen from the dead. What are we doing with it? We just ignore it? It's like, oh, well, you know, this is some story in the Bible. No, it's not some story in the Bible. It's been historically, I mean, we can't, there's no, there's an empty tomb there. And there's no grave. And the soldiers were paid off to keep, keep it quiet. People track to Mecca every year to see someone entombed. We have an empty grave. 
Don't let pride stand in your way. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ who has proven he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It's our refusal, our rejection of the signs that condemns us. It's our refusal to repent. We see in verses 41 and 42. Jesus, continuing on with this illustration of Jonah, picks up and lays down for us two illustrations of positive and correct responses to God's work that provide a damning testimony to those who would reject and refuse to repent against unbelief in every generation. Not just that one, but everyone subsequent to it. Notice what he says. He talks about Jonah. Here we have, first of all, the men of Nineveh. <laughs> Verse 41. I'm not making it. Men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. Again, this unbelieving generation and every unbelieving generation after them. And here's what happened. The Ninevites were, were despised. They were pagans. They were the worst of the pagans. The Israelites didn't like them. That's why Jonah didn't want to go there. But when he went there, they repented. Their repentance and faith in God at the preaching of Jonah, brought them spiritual and physical deliverance. I think it's interesting that they never saw the sign of Jonah. The Ninevites didn't see Jonah go into the belly of the fish and then come back up. But it's that sign, that illustration, that Jesus, that foreshadowing of Jesus, that he says they did respond to the preaching. They didn't have a miraculous sign. You're asking for a miraculous sign? The people of Nineveh, they didn't need a miraculous sign. Here's what they got. And the message was this. <laughs> Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Oh, there you go. That's a pleasant message. Oh, good. We're down with that. Let's, let's go on. No, that, that was all they got. And it says they repented in ashes, in dust and ashes. They were minimal evidence, but ma magnificent repentance. Now, by contrast, Jesus says, here you are, <laughs> privileged people of God. You have the law, the prophets, you have Jesus standing in front of you. One greater than Jonah is, is here. And you reject his message. And you reject his miracles. It's amazing to me, and please don't, well, you may take offense at this because maybe you followed it, but it's amazing to me how many people are so eager to jump on the bandwagon with someone like uh, Marie Osmond, you know, who, who has her, her own diet plan, you know. And like, they'll listen to her like she's the expert of, of how to run your, you know, how to organize your life around your diet. So they have maximum response to someone with minimal knowledge about the whole thing. Now she's got some personal experience, sure. But they'll ignore and reject someone like my wife, who's a registered dietitian, who's gone to school and had years of experience on this thing, and they won't listen to her. In much the same way, we have the people of Nineveh with minimal evidence... <laughs> magnificent repentance. What about us? What about us? To the self-righteous and sinister Pharisees, the Lord offers a humiliating rebuke. Because of your, your resistance to me, these people are going to stand up and they're going to judge you. They're going to say guilty on the day of judgment to you. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He gives another pagan illustration. Another illustration of a pagan who at the response, responded to God. And he talks about the queen of the south. Or if you looked it up in 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba, which means south, who traveled, it says, 
a great distance, like you know, in many, 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 many miles then. It was like uh, you know, hundreds of miles that she traveled. And she responded to the wisdom of Solomon. Well, it wasn't Solomon's wisdom. It was God's wisdom through Solomon. So she responded to God. And she declared to the spiritually, she will declare to the spiritually advantaged people who have Jesus in front of them, one greater than Solomon, you're condemned. It's in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, when she heard the wisdom of Solomon, when she saw it, when she heard, heard it and she experienced it, it took her breath away. But in the presence of something greater than Solomon, these unbelievers refused to trust his superior wisdom and receive his message of salvation through repentance and faith in him. Jesus declared himself in Matthew chapter 12 to be greater than the prophet Jonah. He declared himself to be greater than King Solomon. He declared himself, if you look back at chapter 12, verse 6, to be greater than the temple. He's the greatest prophet, priest, and king. And at the judgment, he will stand. Not only will the men of Nineveh, not only will the queen of the south, but Jesus Christ will stand as the judge, sit as the judge, as we, as we stand, and he will condemn as guilty those who refuse to repent. So I ask, are you one who's had minimal evidence and a magnificent repentance or maximum repentance, if you will? Or someone with maximum evidence and minimal or no repentance? I just say repent and believe and accept what Jesus did on the cross is the payment for your sins and turn from your sinful, self-directed life and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior and He will not stand. You will not stand on Judgment Day and be pronounced guilty, but you'll be pronounced innocent through the blood of Christ as the blood of Christ is placed and seen by God over our sins. And so that, as, as Paul says, we will receive His righteousness as He received our sin. Trust Christ today. We reject the signs, we're condemned. We refuse to repent, we're condemned. If our reformation is present without redemption, we are condemned. The parable in verses 43 through 45 is indeed very confusing at first glance. You read it and you go, what in the world is this all about? But I believe with the exorcism of chapter 12, verse 22, in view, which kind of started this whole thing, this whole immediate controversy, all right? The parable strikes at the heart of sterile religion, moral legalism that was promoted by the Pharisees, that was practiced by most of the people. And he does so, excuse me, by outlining the scary and the sobering consequences of religious reform that comes without true heartfelt repentance. In other words, this is religiosity, it's moralism without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that the man that's inhabited by an unclean spirit would correspond to those who are reformed, this generation, uh, yet 
they are refused to repent. They're reformed, but they refuse to repent in the response to the person and work of Jesus. I'm going to tease it out a little bit if, if you'll bear with me. So the, the departure of the unclean spirit indicates a temporary response. You know, a temporary liberation. So the, the unclean spirit, the removal of the unclean spirit, re represents this temporary liberation and relief from the consequences of sin that have been brought about by their exposure to Jesus. The person and work of Christ, okay, what he's done. Primarily through Christ's miraculous uh, healings and exorcism, which 1222 was an example, right? This guy experienced the freedom from the, from the demon control. And secondarily, through their strict legalism and their moralistic uh, adherence to, to the laws, they had had the demons cast out. Their house had been swept and put in order, so to speak. So do you see that when Jesus came on the scene, and because they had been following the law and the teachings and their traditions, they, they got this sense that they were morally okay. And Jesus came on the, on the scene, and a few demons were cast out, and people's diseases were healed, and so the effects of sin were mitigated. And so in that sense, the, the, the unclean spirit, the demon the, had left, and they were house was clean, so they thought. That's, that's the picture, okay? But it, but it speaks of real moral change. I think Jesus is talking about real change has taken place that many of them then and many of us now have tasted. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was the pursuit of God. We, we just decided, you know, and I've, I've talked to people and you've heard of people. They, they say, you know, I just, at this age in my life, stage in my life, I just realized I, I need to search for God. Something's missing. Maybe it's when they get married. Maybe it's when they have children. Maybe it's when they... Uh, you know, are empty nesters or whatever. There's a crisis or a change in season. And so I, I'm seeking God. Maybe it was because of just moral determination. You say, well, I got to get my act together or I'm going to uh, wind up dead. I got to stop doing some of this stupid stuff. I got to start changing my act and my scene or I'm going to lose my relationships. Something that caused us to say, well, I got to get my act together. I don't want to lose my finances. Jesus' ministry liberated many from the temporary consequences of sin. But what Jesus is sad about is that the ones who'd been liberated were not delivered from the terminal cancer of sin. There's temporary consequences had been eliminated for a while, but the, the cancer that was growing within them that would result in their eternal damnation hadn't been dealt with. And so he was saddened and had not been removed and the way that MacArthur describes it this way, he says the miracle of repentance and trust. They hadn't experienced the miracle of repentance and trust in Christ. Thus, their house was left unoccupied, okay, in the, as you look at the parable. So their house is unoccupied, and if it's not occupied by Christ, guess what? It will be occupied by something worse. And this demon that was in possession in him at the first point in this guy isn't even as bad as it can get because there's seven more that are worse than him that come to join him in the next time when he comes back. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, the transforming power and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit which comes into the person only through repentance and faith in Christ, there is no Dealing with the cancer of sin. No. The last state of the man 
that's reformed but not redeemed, that's reformed but not reconciled to God through faith in Christ, will be worse than the first. How so? How will it be worse than it was? Well, I think, I'm just going to throw out a couple of ideas that I think kind of strike at it. First of all, moralistic religion and reform that comes with it, without redemption, promotes a a delusion that we're really morally okay. Okay, that, that somehow I'm okay. I'm, I'm religious, and so that I've got my act together. A moral superiority with, within the unbelieving person that anesthetizes us against the metastasizing cancer that's going to lead to our termination and condemnation. You see how it gets? It's like, I really feel good about myself because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of moral. I'm way better than a lot of other people, so I'm, I'm okay. Which is a delusion because it, it keeps us further from God than, than we could be. You know, it's possible, and it happens, that people who exercise and eat right die from, the, from hardening of their arteries. Right? What Jesus is describing here is religious people who are spiritual who die from the hardening of their sensibilities. They're no longer sensitive to the fact that they really are a sinner in need of Christ. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, It's much easier to reach someone who is overwhelmed with the true sense of his sin than someone who is overwhelmed with a false sense of his righteousness. That's what scares me. I mean, it scares me about people who are in church and who grew up in the church and who are around religious things. And it's not just the church of Jesus Christ. It's not just evangelical church. It's any church or it's any religious experience and somehow they think that they're okay. And I've, I've read and heard of many people who they're satisfied with their religiosity or their spirituality, but their spirituality has nothing to do with Jesus. And it scares me because they think they're okay and they're, they're, they're good with themselves and that's the delusion of Satan. That you can be okay. Secondly, without the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit within the human heart, the reformed but not redeemed will return to their sinful ways. And probably in worse ways. We've heard oftentimes about people who profess faith in Christ and they, they, they walk around and they actually lead people to Christ and they're doing great things in ministry and then later on they just abandon it all and they just chuck it and they run off with the church secretary or whatever. And you go, where does that come from? Reform without reconciliation will result in a return to sin in the same way that Peter describes dogs returning to their vomit and washed pigs returning to the pig wallow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, uh, basically uses the same words as Jesus did here, that the, worst, the second state of those people will be worse than the first. How many of you have ever been to a, a swimming pool or to the beach, actually, uh, with a beach ball? Okay. Okay, yeah, maybe some of you have. If you haven't, you can try this. Okay, this is an experiment. So take a beach ball. Don't take a big beach ball, but just take a small beach ball. Go to the beach, go to the pool, and then uh, try to hold the ball under the water. Right? You just hold it under the water. 
Well, you know what happens. Eventually, the, the ball surfaces because the physics required. We can suppress the ball under the water, under the surface. We can suppress our sin under the surface through our own determination and false sense of religiosity for a while. But eventually, the sin comes to the surface. The sin is going to rise. Reformation without transformation through faith in Christ opens the unrepentant of this generation to whom Jesus spoke and this generation to whom I speak and every generation in between and afterwards to an even greater sin, even greater worth uh, uh, evil that will result in our condemnation. Several years ago, I was headed back to Indiana after visiting my wife in Nashville when she was, she wasn't my wife at the time, she was my wife now, she was my fiance, at her internship in Nashville, Tennessee. I was headed back and I looked up and I saw signs similar to this, I-65 north to Chicago. And I realized that I had made a wrong turn. I had failed to read and heed the signs that came before that sign because I wanted to take I-69 north to Fort Wayne, which is North and east, Chicago's north and west. I was going the wrong direction because I failed to read and heed the signs. If you're listening this morning, I challenge you to read the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the one he said. This is the, this is the mic drop, gang. This is the one, only one remaining that you're going to get, and that is the resurrection of Jesus, that you would realize that he really did rise from the dead. And in doing so, he proved that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that he conquered sin, and the consequence of it is death, and gave us victory that we can experience through faith in him now. Don't, don't refuse to repent. Don't reject the sign. Don't refuse to repent. Don't be a reformed person, but not a regenerate person, not a redeemed person, or you will stand before him one day condemned. And it won't be just the men of Nineveh. It won't be just the queen of the south. It, it won't be only them. It will be the Son of God, our Savior, who says, guilty. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ and experience new life in him. And if you're here this morning, listening, or you're here, uh, and, and you are a redeemed person, not just a reformed person, but a regenerate person, yes, a fallen, uh, imperfect, but regenerate person, then I hope and I pray that the, the, the proof of Jesus' identity in this sign, the sign of Jonah, his death, burial, and resurrection, will provide us all with comfort and give us confidence that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. As we live in a world where we are constantly and more continually becoming persecuted like he was. It's easy to throw our hands in there and say, what's the point? We will be marginalized. We will be minimized. We will be trivialized. We will be maligned. And we're increasingly becoming that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we will be glorified one day. And lastly... I would say, may, may the, the plight of those who are apart from Christ, among the evil generation, may that plight compel us to want to share this sign and the beauty of this sign with them so that they can have new life like, like we do. And 
as is our tradition, each Sunday we remember this sign of Jonah. When we take the bread and the cup, the death and burial of resurrection of Jesus is remembered as the we think of the bread, which is his, symbolizes his body broken, and the cup, his blood shed, and then his resurrection, which provides opportunity for all who believe to escape sin and death and hell and have victory over it. And we'll stand before him one day, and in spite of all of the mistakes we've made, he'll say forgiven and not guilty. And so if you're here listening or here in person as part of our praise team or tech team, uh, I just invite you to take a moment or two and, and just reflect where you're at. Am I a little evidence and much repentance or maximum evidence and no repentance? doesn't matter. If you're here and you turn right now and trust Christ, you can take these elements as a reminder and rejoice. Heed the sign after you read the sign and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you uh, for Jesus. And Lord, I, I just confess that uh, all too often I fail to be cognizant of the reality of the resurrection as the telltale sign of your identity. Help every unbeliever to see it clearly by your Spirit's opening of their eyes. May they repent and turn and trust in you and find forgiveness in the promise of eternal life and find life in you. And may those of us who know you learn to rest in you and rejoice in you and find comfort in who you are. And may we be motivated to share your love with those around us, we pray in Jesus' name. 